James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God today. Good morning. It's good to see you. If you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, welcome to Apostles Church. Pastor Daniel, who's normally preaching on Sundays, is at a little family reunion in Arizona right now. So he is getting some much-needed R&R, and so you are stuck with me. So deal with it. When it comes to actively living out our Christian faith, Jesus gives us two overarching rules to live by. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 37, Jesus says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything God commands us to do as his chosen people always is in obedience to these two rules. Jesus said in Matthew 22, directly following this last text, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, meaning that the scope of God's counsel on kingdom living flows from these two rules. To further reiterate this point, the prophet Micah asked the rhetorical question, what does God require of his people? To which he says, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. It's Micah 6.8. Now that reduced to its simplest form, Micah is saying this, love God and love others. Last week we considered a portion of scripture where James, the author of this epistle that we're in this morning, began teaching on how our belief in God and his implanted word should produce obedience to these two rules. James then follows this essential teaching on knowing and doing the will of God by giving a little example of what that looks like. He says in James chapter 1, verse 27, a passage that we covered last week, pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
Now, loosely paraphrased, James is saying, take care of those who are in need and live according to God's word. Or, another loose paraphrase, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. And we can also say, love God and love your neighbor. This is what James is teaching, is true devotion to God. Now, in our text this morning, James is now turning a corner, and he's gently pointing out an area where his audience, the recipients of this letter, is failing terribly at living out these two rules, which he calls pure undefiled religion. And the way they are failing is by committing the sin of partiality. Let me reread James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, the sin of partiality may seem a little foreign to some of us this morning. We're not, we don't talk about partiality too much in church. I personally have never heard anyone preach directly on the topic of partiality in my 11 years of actually paying attention in church. As a younger Christian, um, I can't recall anyone ever confessing the sin of partiality when we all circled up in our accountability groups. I feel like the majority of the times it was focused on about three or four rotating sins that young people usually struggle with. But just because this particular evil can appear to not be highlighted as much as others in Scripture, that does not mean that it's not relevant, nor does it mean that it isn't a real threat to the church today. So let us humbly ask the Holy Spirit to sensitize our hearts and teach us through God's holy word this morning. You bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we are so aware of how far we can fall. God, even though we have been clothed with your righteousness by faith in Christ, we still sin. We still disobey. We still make mistakes. And one of the big mistakes we can make as Christians is we can think we're above something. Or we can think that we won't struggle with this certain thing. Maybe somebody else does, but not I. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would sensitize our hearts so we can be humbly receive once again your implanted word. I ask, God, that there are any glaring sins in our lives this morning that your word is directly talking to. God, please bring about repentance. God, help us, God, to live as Christ lived. For your word tells us, for those who abide in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's our desire. So please, Lord, teach us. Teach us on the sin of partiality. Teach us on how we can follow your commands, Lord. But more than anything, I ask God that you would please lead us to worship Jesus this morning. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So what does it look like to show partiality? A good definition of partiality is this. Favoring one person over another based off an unjust assessment. In other words, to show partiality is to determine someone's worth based on their looks, their race, their age, their style, their economic status, their social media following, and the list can go on and on. And then, 
treat that person differently than someone who is on the other end of that spectrum. James gives an example of how these Jewish believers in this letter were doing just this. They were committing the sin of partiality. James chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's a few things worth noting in this illustration slash example that James is giving us. Number one, we can notice the setting to help bring clarity. James is speaking and writing this letter to the church. And when he makes this illustration or example, he's saying this people, a poor man and a rich man, they walk into the assembly meaning they walk into the collective gathering of God's people. So we know that James is using this illustration that's found in the church. We also know from this illustration that if, he says, if a man walks in, which we can deduce from that, these men are not known in the assembly, which further illustrates the point to when you look at someone walking in that you don't know, the sin of partiality can come when you actually make the unjust assessment off face value. The second thing worth noting in this illustration is the characters. There is a rich man. We know so because James tells us he's wearing a gold ring, which can be translated as gold-fingered man, which means he probably wore multiple gold rings displaying his wealth and fine clothing. There's the poor man in shabby clothing. And then there's the church. Again, the assembly, the ones who are making the evil distinctions among themselves. Then lastly, there is the transgression. The evil here is not that the rich man is rich, nor is it that the poor man is poor. It's not even who sat where. The evil here is the unjust distinction between the two men. And it's when they make an unfair distinction and pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and disgrace the one who is not, that is when the sin of partiality is committed. Now, it would seem like not showing partiality would be a no-brainer, right? Not showing favoritism in church is obviously a big no-no, and so we would probably try to avoid that. We would, for the most part, just not do it. But do you think the church still struggles with this today? Let's first think about this internally. Have you, don't answer out loud, Think about this. Have you individually ever unjustly valued one person or people group over another because of their wealth, their fame, their influence? Fill in the blank. If you can say no to that, I would say search your heart further. If you can say yes to that, James has a lot to say about it. Apparently in the early church, there was a real temptation to favor one group of people over the other based on unjust, or worldly assessments. And if it was a problem then, it most certainly can be a problem today, especially in our culture. Let me list a few ways the church can and does show partiality today. Number one, we can do so by prioritizing a particular age demographic over others for superficial reasons. We can unjustly favor young families that walk in our doors over the elderly or middle-aged saints. 
all in the name of, well, young families are the marker of a healthy church. We can prioritize particular ethnicities over others to favor the majority at times, or in our culture, even favor the minority over the majority that walk the doors of the church for sinful reasons. We can prioritize particular social classes over others. We can pay attention to the wealthy or the educated and ignore those who are in need or unlearned in our church because maybe for some reason they can appear to take more from the church than give. And lastly, how about prioritizing the influential and popular over the normal and seemingly average person, foolishly thinking that if the church could just win over that megastar or that influence, wow, then revival would really break out. Now, there are probably some in here today that think these are examples are a little extreme. And there are some here today that probably think, are thinking that these ways of thinking kind of make sense. And here's the really scary part about partiality and even this way of thinking sometimes is there is some logic and there is even some good strategy in some of these ways of thinking. You probably have heard it before, maybe here in Santa Barbara. If we could just win over Oprah Winfrey, I mean, with her pool of resources, with her sphere of influence, if we could, the church could win her over for Christ, there is a really good opportunity that California and all of Hollywood is going to repent. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but I've heard things like that before. If we can just get Justin Bieber to attend our church, then people would be like, what is going on here? There is something, we've got to check this out. Or if we can get young families, a church full of just young families, then sure, the community is going to say there's got to be something happening there. Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to strategize or to desire to improve church age demographics or to desire to expand our reach to the lost. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I am saying that the unjustly favoring of these types of people over anyone else for any reason would be, as James puts it, false religion. Partiality, regardless of any justification, does not represent our God and his holy word accurately. And James gives us two reasons for why that is. Number one, partiality distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. Partiality distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ. And number two, partiality defies the royal law of God. Let's take these in turn. Partiality distorts the gospel. Why did God choose the people of Israel? Here's how about that question. Why did God choose the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Did he choose them because he has much to gain from their popularity? their wealth, their influence, their power, their obedience? Did he choose them because they had a huge sphere of influence that he now had access to because now he has the people of Israel? The answer is no. God chose them because he loved them. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to our, your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery 
from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God is impartial, meaning God does not show favoritism to the externally prosperous over the poor and the helpless. In fact, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has made himself abundantly clear that he justly stands up for the poor and the sick and the widow and the orphan. He stands up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. And not only does he stand up for them, but he promises his kingdom to the poor for those who love him. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. God's impartiality is seen through all of Scripture, but is most clearly seen in his choosing and redeeming of those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul spoke to this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It is on this point that James begins his assault on the sin of partiality. James 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? James is encouraging his audience to really think about who God is and how partiality does not comply with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we preach salvation by grace through faith in Jesus and then practice partiality, we distort the gospel. We preach another gospel. Because you see, partiality says, I choose you because I think you measure up. Where the gospel says, you will never measure up, yet I choose you because I love you, and I will be glorified through my love for you. Practicing partiality distorts the gospel. Not only does it partiality counter the message of the gospel, but it also counters common sense, James says. Verses 6 through 7. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, it's important to know that the vast majority of the population in the ancient times was poor, which is especially true of Christians, given the fact that people hated Christians. James is pointing out that the vast majority of the wealthy, not all, but a vast majority of the wealthy and powerful were the ones who were cheating and oppressing those lower-class, poverty-stricken Christians. James has a lot to say about the rich and their oppression of the poor throughout his letter, one place being in James chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud and are, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not 
resist you. Now, with this dominant treatment of the majority of the rich to the poor, James is simply pointing out the obvious here. Why in the world would you choose to elevate those in the church who A, oppress you, and B, blaspheme the name of Jesus over serving and loving the poor in your midst? These things ought not to be so. James is saying, brothers and sisters, think on these things. The second point James makes is this, that partiality defies the royal law. This is chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James is now doing the very thing he used as a teaching illustration in last week's sermon. In James chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. He is holding up the mirror, so to speak, the perfect law, the law of liberty, up to the church's face, and he's pleading with them to make the correction. James quotes Jesus' summarization of the law in Matthew 22, which is why he refers to it as the royal law. The entire counsel of God summed up by our humble King Jesus who lived out the law perfectly in our place. James then goes on to teach that if you fail in one area of the law, you have failed in all areas of the law, for you are now by default a transgressor of the law. Chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now this passage is a particularly troublesome passage for a lot of people. Because what James is saying is that a person who steals a candy bar is on the same end of the scale as a person who commits murder. Now, obviously, each merits its own physical consequence because there's an extreme difference in the severity of the offense towards God and towards the neighbor. But the point is this, that you are either a transgressor of the law or you are not. The law is on a test that you can pass if you get 9 out of 10 questions right. You either pass or you fail. There is no middle ground or gray area. Jesus spoke to this point in John 8 when the woman who was caught in adultery was thrown at the feet of Jesus. And the religious leaders asked Jesus, this woman has committed adultery, should we stone her? And Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And all slowly but surely sunk their heads and walked away. Point being, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the God's glory because all have in some way, shape, or form transgressed against the law. Therefore, as transgressors of the law, all are deserving of death. Now, that sounds harsh, right? Maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible or Christianity and you're hearing this this morning and you're just like, this is gnarly. Please stick with me, okay? Let me finish this. This truth is stated very clearly by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 6. And James is telling the church that while they think they're being obedient to God's law, they're only deceiving themselves. They are breaking the royal law. They're not loving their neighbor. Therefore, their religion is worthless because partiality defies the royal law. Now, James has rightfully argued that to unjustly favor the rich over the poor or the influential over the average 
or the strong over the weak is to misrepresent the heart of God. And the sin of partiality does so in two ways. It distorts the gospel and it defies the royal law of God. So now what? What is James now going to encourage these believers with? James gives them a call to action followed with a warning. James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, many commentators agree that the law of liberty spoken of here is not speaking of the Old Testament law, like the Ten Commandments and the hundreds of other laws. Nor is it speaking of Jesus' summation of the Old Testament law that we read in Matthew 22. But rather, it is speaking of God's complete law as fulfilled by and in Christ. Before Jesus' atoning work on the cross, all of God's people lived under the law, meaning they were to be judged according to their own ability to keep the law, to keep God's word, to keep God's standard. The problem with that is that no one could keep the law perfectly. And you guys, probably each one of you can testify to that. No one can keep the law perfectly. So God's people had to trust that God would remain faithful despite their unfaithfulness. And with joy, we know he remained faithful. God came into the world, i.e. in Jesus Christ, and obeyed the law perfectly, thus fulfilling the law. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus then died on the cross and absorbed all of the wrath that was meant for those who had not been faithful to his law, thus liberating those who had and would trust in God alone for their salvation. Galatians 3 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus then rose from the grave, thus giving all who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior the hope of the resurrection. It is this law of liberty that all Christians find their hope and life and their being in. And James is reminding his audience that although they are saved by grace through faith in Christ, they are still obligated to live as those who will be judged under God's royal law. Which is really a sweet segue into his next portion of scripture and teaching that Pastor Dan will be preaching on next week. Genuine faith produces genuine desire and ability to obey the royal law. But let's conclude with this final thought here that James gives us in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The principle here is very simple, and it's very consistent with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6, which teaches us how to pray, and Matthew 18. For those who show no mercy, James is saying, no mercy will be given to them. Without question, James is sharing the ultimate end of those who think they are in Christ, yet don't live by the royal law. Or the way he put it last week, those who hear God's word but don't do God's word. This is really important. James is not saying that you have to show mercy to get it. I know it sounds just like that. 
You have to do something to get something. That's not what James is saying. James is saying that those who have truly received mercy will show it. Those who have truly received mercy from Jesus Christ will show mercy. Jesus did not take our punishment and show us mercy because we showed it first. Quite the opposite. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is because we have been given mercy that we are now entrusted with the ministry of mercy. What a burden, removing thought. To know we have to give to receive. That Christ has given all. That Christ has given us his mercy, his grace. That Christ died for us even when we didn't even want him. We despised him, the word tells us. We were opposed to him, yet he showed mercy. Now there are those who have not yet received God's mercy here this morning, perhaps. And those who have not, this is a heavy and terrifying reality. If that's you this morning, I have to say this. Take heart. In Christ, the mercy of God is made known to all who would trust in him as their Savior. In Christ, the mercy of God is made known to all who would trust him as Savior. It's not too late. In Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we are very thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for your faithfulness, even when we are faithless. We thank you for your kindness, even when we can be rude. We thank you for your grace, God, giving us something that we don't deserve, salvation. We thank you for your mercy, God, that you extended to us. God, we thank you for your love. We know, God, your word tells us that we can love because you first loved us. God, we thank you are not partial. God, but you are just. God, that when you single out the poor, you do it in the just way to serve and to minister. God, we thank you that you give us opportunity to hear the gospel message over and over and over again. For us who believe, just encouraging and strengthening our faith, reminding us to rest in the work that Christ has done, reminding us that although we strive and desire to be obedient to your royal law, to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves, God, still there is so much grace We thank you, God, that although there may be some, we know, God, in this world who are just without hope, without trust in you, God, we thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are patient. God, please, we ask that you would minister, continue to minister to our hearts that this truth in Scripture of what partiality can do, how it totally just disfigures the gospel as a complete defiance to your law. God, help us to live in light of this truth. God, help us to be not hearers who forget, but hearers who do and who act. And through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen.